The 35-year-old came to me and said, I have $100,000, I never want to work again. I'd say, well, you're going to be poor the rest of your life. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. As many regular listeners know, Bossman and I recently sold one of our businesses. And if you haven't yet listened to that episode, highly recommend it. It's probably one of our best received. I mean, we just learned so many lessons through that process. So you can check that out at tropicalmba.com slash sold. That transaction left us in a situation that many entrepreneurs are lucky enough to face, which is, you know, what do you do with money? We spend years learning what to do with clients, what to do with cash flow, you know, all these skill sets of entrepreneurship, but we don't really talk about what to do with money, how to invest your money to make sure it's there for retirement and to make sure that it grows for you. Yeah. And until now, Dan, I think until we've had a little bit of money, I've been very skeptical of these people that promise to be able to manage your money and make money with your money. Yeah. But one of the things that we're learning is that it's a completely different skill from building a business. Right. And so you got to bring in the professionals sometimes. And seeking out this advice from professionals has many pitfalls, like you brought up. I mean, how do you know that the advice you're receiving is in your best interest or in their best interest and so on? The investment management or financial advising industry, it's, it's just that. It's an industry. It's not a charity, Ian. You know, these people, if they're going to provide services, they need to get compensated too. So we thought it would be a good opportunity, you know, being the know-nothings that we are, to sit down with someone well-respected in this field. That person is Joe Werbeck. He's the president and co-founder of Sequinox, a firm that works with both retirees and entrepreneurs. There's a lot of things we talked about in this interview, Ian, but we asked Joe for some of his best tips about how to evaluate financial professionals and how to identify whether or not they can help you. There's a lot of like classic BS things that are like some easy wins that you can ensure that, hey, if your financial advisor plans to do X, Y, and Z, then that's probably not a good choice for you. If you stick around to the end of the episode, you're also going to get a chance to hear Joe call the boss man delusional, which is frankly something I've wanted to say for years. I must be delusional because I don't even remember that. <laughs> it's something that could have been said. Absolutely. You know, one thing I really like about Joe is he had a really good handle on the big picture of like sort of the macro financial trends that frankly, I know very little about. So it was fascinating to hear his perspective. Part of his perspective is based on how different generations have different attitudes about the economy and how, you know, millennials, for example, that are coming up into the economy, getting their first jobs and so on, how they might approach things differently than older guys like me and you and the generations before us. So a lot of cool things on that front. So those issues about the macro economy, boss man, that's where this conversation got started. The best things in life are free. Can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. You have to look at demographics on the whole thing. You have to really understand that there are 90 million baby boomers. There are about 60 million Gen X, and I believe that's who we all are, right? 
I think we're just there. We're 35. Oh, yeah. Well, 1944 to 1964 is baby boomers. 64 to 84 is Gen X. And 84 to 2004, roughly, is your millennials. No, we're Gen Xers. Okay, so Gen Xers, there's only 60 million of us guys. So you have 90 million people who took a stock market back in you know the early 80s when it was barely 1,000 points. And they came into the workforce and they created new products and money was free and it just took off. And we drove the stock market from 1,000 points up to you know, 12, 13, 14, 15,000. You know, 1,500% return on the market where before, for the previous 40 years, we'd only seen a 100% gain. Then you say, okay, there's 90 million people. They tend to peak when they hit ages between 48 to 50, their spending goes down. And we live in an economy that's driven by spending. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, if people stop spending, the economy disappears. So we have 90 million people who are heading into retirement and there's 60 million of us. There's just not enough of us to keep pace with that. You know, for every two or three houses they need, we need one. For every two or three hospitals, for every two or three schools, for every two or three shopping malls, we only need one. So it's an interesting situation. It's the first time it's ever occurred in this country that the next generation is smaller than the preceding generation. Do you think that the next generation has different habits than the previous generation? Well, you know, I don't think our generation has a great deal of different habits than the previous generation. If you want to talk about somebody who has different habits, you got to look at the millennials. You know, that's a whole nother conversation to get into. There's roughly 100 to 110 million millennials. So they're bigger than the boomers. They're almost twice the size of Gen X. I mean, my graduating class of high school, we had 250. My son's graduating class, I believe, is 850. Same local town. So there's a lot more of them, but psychologically, they were affected in ways that you and I and our parents, nobody has been affected the way they were until you go back to the Great Depression. You and I and our parents never lived through anything like that. And these millennials saw their parents lose half their money in 2001. And then they saw them lose not only half their money in 2008, but then they lost their job and then they lost their house. And as a kid, that psychologically affects you for life, whether you know it or not. When you start looking at the demographics, the psychology of investing, the psychology of the economy, there's a lot of questions out there. Tell us about the like the genesis story of your firm. Like, Was it difficult for you to get started or you just have a few clients? What was that like? It actually came from I was working with Principal Financial and I was working with a few clients and I wanted to make recommendations and my bosses were pushing me to recommend products that benefited the firm more than it benefited the client. And I don't like that. You know, I think at the end of the day, you have to do what's right for your clients. I started Sequinox and I had a goal, a mission to always do what was right for the client. And I figured if I do that, the company will grow. You know, I can't go wrong in that. And so when I started, I had no clients. I had no assets under management. It was just me and a dream. And 14 years later, we work with about 800 individuals and we're just eclipsing 150 million of assets. Joe, that's a really interesting point, you know, that you're getting pushback from the firm to just do what's right for the clients. So a uh, question I have in your current firm is, and this is something that I'm always interested to learn about in terms of risk and sharing the risk, how do you share the risks of your clients? It seems like a lot of the incentives, what you're talking about here, aren't aligned when it comes to financial advisors and making the right moves. Tell me a little bit about like how you have skin in the game. 
Well, we tend to do mostly fee-based. So we take a percent of our clients' assets every year, 1%. So as our clients' assets grow, our income grows. And when we have a dip in the market and if our clients lose money, we lose money. So we're sort of in it together. We're not making commission every time we buy and sell a security. We're doing it if we make a sell. We're doing it in hopes that the account value will go up. So what I tell my clients is, you know, we're sort of in bed together. And if you make money, we make money. And if you lose money, we lose money. So we have the same goals aligned. But in a way, and I'm going to be a little bit abrasive here. No, please. In a way, I mean, 1%, if I'm putting in $100, you're not really putting in any money, right? No, no, I'm not. No, you're right. You could look at it and say, well, if I lose 20%, you're only losing you know, a very small fraction of your income. And that's true. But if you know who I am as a person, and when you get to know me as an individual, I never want to fail anyone I've always been driven to succeed. So yeah, you can say on the outside, you're not going to be as affected by that. But we take it very seriously when we work with our clients. You know, we literally form lifetime relationships. And once we have a client, we have them for the rest of their lives. So it's very important to us emotionally that the clients succeed too. So I am tied to it. It seems like the incentive structure in the industry creates that situation you felt at your first job. It does. Are there people, it's like systemic in that way, like it would be very easy to inhabit that mindset. Are there people in the industry trying to change how these structures work or? From the outside, I can understand the confusion because there are so many different ways that we do what we do in this industry. There are individuals who say you should be fee only. There are individuals who say you should be commission only. I look at it, if you get a commission, you're not going to necessarily want to help that client six or seven years down the road because you got paid six or seven years earlier. So you don't really have that relationship. You know, my clients are paying me every year to work with them. So you look at it more of like a lifetime customer value. Yeah. If you're going to be a good advisor, you're going to meet with your clients multiple times a year, every single year, as long as they're your client. And you want to be, I don't want to say, you have to be making money to keep a business open, right? I mean, you can't work for free. So you have to have that income there to survive, to help the client to grow their assets. So it it works. It does work on us getting the revenue and us helping them and growing. And really, if I'm not making them 1%, they should fire me. One of the things you've mentioned, so I'll just read a quote that I read. You said, I think a lot of financial advisors are subtly misleading their clients by saying they're managing their money for them. What did you mean by that? When you sit down with your average advisor, they're going to say, hey, we're going to manage your assets. Okay, we're going to take care of it. And what I find that means is I don't want to give exact numbers here because I don't want to say the wrong thing. But the majority of advisors that I see, they're going to put together a mutual fund portfolio. And then it's going to sit in that portfolio and they won't look at it. I mean, they might check it every quarter before the call with you or if you call them up and say, I have questions, but they're not going to be proactively managing it. It's not the way the industry happens. They don't have time. And frankly, they don't have the expertise to really handle that kind of a transaction on a day-to-day basis. There's a lot that goes into managing a portfolio. It's not a simple, easy task. And they don't have time because they're trying to acquire more customers because that's their model and they're not paying attention to making the right financial decisions. Is that right? They could be trying to acquire more customers. They could be doing something else. You have to ask your advisor, just be point blank and say, are you going to be actively managing? Meaning are you going to be making changes on a day-to-day basis? Or are you going to be setting it up to rebalance every quarter, which if they do that, it just happens automatically. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what some of them do. I just tell my client from the very beginning, I say, I'm not a quant. I'm not the guy who's going to sit here and watch the computer every day. I don't have time for that. So I hire outside money managers. And I let the clients know I will be constantly researching all the money managers out there. And I will find the ones that are best. And if the ones that are best aren't working, we'll get rid of them and we'll find somebody else. 
So I let them know right from the beginning, I'm not the guy hitting the buy and the sell button. Are there common mistakes that people make when they walk into their financial advisor's office that you see recur? You need to understand how they're getting compensated. They should be very upfront with that. You want what I call it a cyclical approach to advising, not a lineal approach where I hear it time and time again, clients come in and say, hey, I sat down with this person. They sold me this product. They fell off a cliff and I haven't heard from them in two years. They say 86% of advisors contact their clients once every two years, and that's just not enough. Joe, tell us a little bit about what you recommend for a lot of your entrepreneurial clients. So they tend to probably have a little bit different perspective than traditional clients that have been working in a job for the last 20 years. might not be necessarily that they have a different amount of money, but they just go about life in a different way. Do you have a different approach for these people because their mindsets are different? I think I begin all of the interviews the same to find out just because they are an entrepreneur doesn't mean their mindset is definitely going to be different. I approach everybody as an individual. I try not to classify them into any group. If the entrepreneur's end goal is to sell their business and retire and live on X number of dollars, I just have to make sure that I set up their accounts in a way that that can occur. And one of the things I focus on heavily when it comes to business owners, entrepreneurs, is taxes. I'm not a tax preparer. I don't do tax returns. But I have to understand how your investments are going to be taxed, not only today, but 20 years down the road. Ian, let me just jump right in here because I think that this point that Joe is making is really interesting. I don't think during the sale we thought enough about the long-term tax implications of how we were structuring things and how we were thinking of things. You know, many entrepreneurs have a CPA and Just to clarify, that's a certified public accountant, that's what we call them here in the States, who prepare their yearly tax statement. But that's not the same thing as what Joe's suggesting here. He's suggesting having a long-term plan for how your assets and your portfolio will be taxed in the future. I think that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I think it is rare to find a CPA that can provide what Joe is offering and also the tax preparation. their CPA. That's part of the team. It's part of the financial team I try to build with my clients. You know, you want to get the lawyer involved, the CPA involved, me. And I hear what you're saying, but I want you to take it further. I mean, I hear you're saying I'm worried about taxes now. I'm worried about the implications now. You have to be thinking about that money, how it's going to affect you and your family for the rest of your life. Because that money, I assume it's a large amount of money, and you just can't take that and make it tax-free. So that money is going to be taxed unless you do something with it every year for the rest of your life. And people think, well, okay, well, I lost tax money. You know, I paid 10000 or $5,000 in taxes, so I lost five or $10,000. No, you didn't. You lost four or $500,000 of future growth off of that five or $10,000 of taxes. You're losing millions of dollars through taxes. You have to be thinking down the road and not just how much am I going to lose today? Here's a question. Maybe we could use yourself as an example. If you could give me a typical investment approach for somebody with $100,000 versus somebody with a million dollars, what would be like an approach that you would recommend? How would you determine what it is? So again, it's not the amount of money, it's where that person is in their stage of life, what this money is going to be doing for them. You know, is the person with $100,000 going to just put it away and not worry about it till retirement? And the person with a million dollars is going to come to me and say, hey, I need to take income off of this every year. I mean, those are two completely different approaches. So again, it's not the value, it's what that individual wants out of that money. 
I think that that's a valid question. How many of your clients don't actually know the answer to that? I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about that question for myself and I'm thinking like, well, I don't know. Two years from now, am I going to have to reinvest in my business? Am I going to want to buy a house? You know, things like this. How many people just don't know? A lot of them don't know. And that's why we take the time during the first and second meetings to really drill that down and find out what are you trying to accomplish? And sometimes you have to put the money aside. I mean, the money is a means to an end. It isn't the end game itself. So, you know, what are you trying to do? Or are you trying to start another company? Are you trying to invest in real estate? And that's what we have to drill down. We have to understand where they're trying to go to really help them get there. Let me butt in for a second, because I think I can say something, Joe, you know, like one of the things I grew up with is like you sell your company and then you put it into the stock market and you get 10% back every year. (laughs) So that's like really, yeah, that's how we talked. You remember that? Who told you that? Did someone tell you that? This is like middle class math. You need to forget that. That's not reality at all. (laughs) And so what would you say to somebody who would love to have an aggressive return like that? Like what kind of strategy do you need to have? You need to have an active money manager. I mean, in this volatile economy, look, this isn't the 90s, okay? And this is not the same market we had in the 80s and 90s. It's a completely different market. We have a lot of things at play. You want to look at Michael Lewis's new book, Flash Boys. It's about high-frequency traders and see how that is playing a big role in the extreme volatility we're having in the market. You know, in the 80s and 90s, there were no supercomputers that could make the trades. There were no dark pools. I mean, that has a huge effect on the average person. The average person is going to get slaughtered. You know, you're not going to survive a market on your own. It's just not going to happen. So you have to be prepared for that kind of thing. And you go back to that question, the 100,000, the million. If a 35-year-old came to me and said, I have $100,000, I never want to work again, I'd say, well, you're going to be poor the rest of your life. $100,000 isn't going to, it's not going to get you there. But if you came to me at 35, and said, I have $100,000 to put away for retirement. Oh my gosh, you're going to have an incredible retirement. Remember this statistic, okay? 25% of Americans have less than $1,000 saved. Yeah. Total. That means retirement accounts, 25% less than 1,000. 50% have less than $25,000 saved. And this includes retirees, 90% have less than $100,000 saved. And that includes 401k. That includes every asset that they own. Let's go to that scenario that I'm very curious. You're not patronizing me with any kind of answer because I literally just know nothing about investing. So let's say I have $100,000 and I want to start thinking seriously about retirement. Okay. What are the next steps? What can I do with that money rather than sit it and chase? Where's the $100,000 sitting right now? Is it already in an IRA or is it just sitting in a bank account? Just sitting in a bank account. I think a lot of our listeners would be in a situation like that where it just came in through their business and it's just in an account with a kind of a frowny face on it because they're busy with their business. The reason I don't like that is that's a taxable account. Okay. So you're going to get taxed three ways on that. You got taxed to put the $100,000 there, correct? Yep. And then if you leave it in that account and it makes any money, every year it makes money, they're going to charge you taxes on that. And then if you go and sell it, you're going to get taxed again. So you don't want to leave it in that account. I mean, you got to really understand the tax implications of that, of those assets. So you got to start moving it into a more tax deferred or tax free account. If you are, and I hate to use this word, but if you're deluded like the majority of Americans and believe that you're going to retire to a lower tax bracket, that is not the case. You probably won't. So you're going to look at some tax deferred vehicle or you're going to see if there's you know, a tax-free vehicle out there. And that's when you have to explore the tax code. Have you guys ever read the Internal Revenue Code? Oh, yeah. It's like bedtime reading for me. wonderful. Yeah. It's only 72,000 pages long. I mean, come on. <laughs> so you got the $100,000. If you wanted to grow tax-deferred, you could get an annuity. Now, when you look at annuities, you have fixed and variable. I tend to stay away from the variable annuities because the fees are high. 
but there are some companies out there that offer variable annuities that they only charge like a $20 a month fee. And now suddenly you can take that $100,000 and bam, you can make it tax deferred. So that's a start because now every year that it makes money, you're not being taxed on that. So if you're okay with the $20 a month expense of the variable annuity, now it's tax deferred. But then you have to think I'm 35. I can't touch this money now till I'm 59 and a half because I just made it tax deferred. That's what you have to understand. Every decision you make has a consequence. You were mentioning that you could have a bright retirement on that. What kinds of asset classes would those funds then go into typically? Today, because like you said, I mean, it's ever changed. It is, but let's look at simple math. If you're 35 and you get a 7.2% return, which 7% isn't out of the realm of possibility, 10% is asking a bit much, I think. But it's 7.2% with a rule of 72, your money doubles every 10 years, right? So if you're 35 and you're going to retire in 30 years at, say, 65, that means your money's going to go up by 300%. So it's going to go from 100 to 200 to 400 to 800. You'll have close to a million dollars growing it at 7%. So it's about reducing the risk and not saying, I have to throw it in the market and just expose it to an index mutual fund and hope that that's going to make me, you know, that 7% return. It may or may not. You want to always look at the underlying investments to make sure that you're not exposing yourself to too much risk because clients will come in with 20 different mutual funds and we'll find out that even though they thought they had all these different funds, they all own the exact same stocks. And so they haven't diversified at all. You have to make sure you have some non-correlated assets in there. You want to make sure that not all of it goes up when the market goes up or goes down when the market goes down. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot that goes into putting a truly successful portfolio together. You mentioned the rule of 72. Do you suspect that the market will continue to grow over the course? of, you know, a lot of the listeners of the show are younger, so they're looking for long-term trends. Okay, well, let's go back to demographics. As I was saying, the boomers, the Gen Y, and the millennials. So we're in a period of stagnation. You know, Harry Dent, a brilliant economist, has put it, he calls this the winter. You know, the markets go through seasons, and this is the winter, and we're heading towards the spring. So as those millennials start to open up more companies, go to work, get out of their parents' basements as they start earning more money. You know, uh, interesting statistic, millennials are saving at rates three times higher than the baby boomers ever saved. Wow. So they're saving money, but they're doing what you said. They're sticking in checking accounts because they're scared because psychologically they saw the markets crash. So I'm sorry, to get back to your question, yes, I think long-term, this country is geared for incredible growth. I think the 20s are going to look like, you know, the 1920s. I think the 2020s are going to look like the 1920s. 110 million young people going out there and starting their lives and making money and starting new business and new technologies and new innovations. I think the long-term looks incredible. I think the next three, four, five years are going to be scary. Interesting. And so I think that your stance right now is, you know, the next three to four years might look bleak, but the future ultimately looks bright. What are some of your strategies? Like you said, diversification is one of them, but what are some of your strategies for the next three or four years? Relying on my active money managers to make sure that my clients' assets are protected. You know, we've been in cash two or three months now. Majority of our assets have been sitting in cash just because it doesn't mean that we're going to stay in cash forever. It's just that the markets took a turn back in August and the trends started shifting downwards. You know, we're having a lot more down days and up days. And unless you're willing to go short, which, you know, for your layman's who don't understand what short means, you can invest in the market and you can make money when it goes up and you can make money when it goes down. You know, you can go long or short. So the short game isn't an easy game to play, but 
it's a game that that's played every day. So unless you're willing to go short during these times of volatility, you know, sometimes sitting on the sidelines is okay. Joe, one of the things I think is fascinating about your work is that people from all walks of life, like walk into your office and they're like, here's like my whole economic life. Yeah. There's winners and there's losers. And I'm curious if you've noticed some patterns amongst people that are really successful with money or people that don't do so well with money. I really have. You know, it's interesting. I work with a lot of retirees, so I get a lot of blue-collar workers, and then I work with the entrepreneurs. And so they are different in the way they've come about their money. And the retirees, they came about it by just systematically, month after month, putting away a little bit of money over long periods of time. And the majority of them, which is pretty interesting, didn't start until they were in their 40s or 50s. Because, you know, when you have kids, as I like to say, kids cost everything and produce nothing. So, (laughs) So it's not until those kids leave that they can start saving. So my blue-collar retirees, they had the 401ks and they stuck the money away and they just kept at it and they kept at it and they saved more and more. And every year they gave themselves what I like to call a retirement raise. They increased their contributions. And over time, the portfolio grew and it worked. Then you have the entrepreneurs who come into large amounts of money when they sell their businesses, and that has to be handled in a completely different way because you know dealing with a large investment and trying to make it tax efficient is a lot more difficult than just slugging away day after day, saving 10, 15, 20% of your income. Right. So who are some of the people, Joe, that you look to as experts and that you get your information from, whether these be public figures or private figures in your life? You know, I look at Scott Minard of Guggenheim Investments. He manages about $70 billion in fixed investments, and I listen to him quite frequently to see which directions he's moving his money because we do deal with a lot of retirees and people who are more conservative. So I like to see where the safe money's going. So if you ever get a chance to follow Scott Minard and look into Guggenheim, he's one of those guys that is eerily correct the majority of the time. Another guy who's a little bit more, how can I say this? He's a little bit more showy than Scott, and that's Harry Dent. Harry Dent's been in the economic scene for decades now. I love his ideas. He's the one who taught me everything I know about demographics. He tends to say big corrections are coming, and I don't tend to follow that as much, but his finer points when he talks about you know the deleveraging of our debt, when he talks about the bond crisis, when he talks about interest rates, he's dead on in all those areas. I mean, that's the kind of guy that if you could peel away some of the showmanship and you can get to the nitty gritty. I mean, Harvard graduate, brilliant man. He knows what he's talking about. So those are two I would say to check out Minard and Dent. I have a final question. There's like kind of a traditional wisdom. It's not traditional, but like our internet business guys, like we kind of all like don't really know how to invest. And so we say investing is no way to get wealthy. The way to get wealthy is to forget (laughs) all of that and to build a business. So what do you think about that? And have you seen people that have gotten wealthy via investing and how do they do it? Again, it takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. Don't think that it's something that if I pick that right stock and it doubles overnight, I'm going to become a millionaire. You're not. So I think you have to do both. I love the idea. I'm an entrepreneur myself. I run multiple businesses, but at the same time, I invest. So you have to have the businesses and you have to have the money put aside. And you know what? If they all work out, you'll have more money than you know what to do with. And if only one of them works out, that's great that you had multiple things going on at once. So systematically over time, putting money away way, but doing it wisely and having an end goal in mind. I just want to say this too, Joe, and this is one thing that I've realized over the last couple of years, you know, so in the business and coming into a little bit of money, it doesn't seem like 
fortunately or unfortunately, unfortunately for me, fortunately for people like you, that you can effectively manage a fortune on your own anymore. No, no, I wouldn't. I would never. Why would you want to? I mean, you just don't have the information or the tools, right? No. Entrepreneurs might have the information or tools to build a business, but it almost seems impossible to do a good job managing your own money after you've made it. And so that's not only a plug for you, but just, I think, a reality of the way that the economy works now. You know, you guys are spending your days following these people and understanding trends and things like that. It it just seems almost impossible for normal people to be able to achieve the kinds of growth that you see, you know, post-sale with your money. They say the average, you know, while the market may have averaged seven, eight percent for the last ten years, the average investor who handles their own money is only averaged two and a half percent. You say, you know, why would you do it yourself? Exactly. You never fix your car yourself. You don't fix your HVAC unit yourself. You always hire a professional to do it. The same thing should be said about your money and your retirement. You know, the average person spends more time planning their vacation than they do planning their retirement. So you really need to sit down and if you don't want to do it, get some help. in life are free but you can give them to the birds and bees i want money I think this makes a lot of sense to me. And I know anecdotally, so many people who are sort of in their den or their study moving stocks around and stuff. And it's like, that ain't going anywhere good. It doesn't seem to work out very often for me. And so I like the idea of considering getting professional advice, professional people involved, in particular when, you know, what you're really trying to do is protect your time to be a maker, be a builder, like build more assets like that's the largest upside for an entrepreneur so why are you gonna sit in your den and trade stocks even think about stocks on a regular basis it doesn't seem to be a good time investment to me right so for us you know you get a little money from an exit and you think well i'm gonna have to probably reinvest this money at some point into some new venture i want to keep this money available so i can you know take advantage of opportunities when they come up basically what joe said is like, that's fine. You can do that. You can leave yourself open to these options. Let me help you manage your money in a way so you can do that. So my initial impression when I first started looking at this stuff uh, a couple years ago was like that option might not be available. Like they take your money, they lock it up in the stock market and you don't get it until you're 65 years old. But Joe seems to have a more holistic approach that allows you to be free with your money in a way that works for you. You know, and when you were asking Joe these theoretical questions, I think the reason why it's so hard to answer them is because it is so individual to your situation. And that's what I like about his approach is it's individual. How do you manage your money? Bossman and I are genuinely curious. We will read your thoughts. We will follow up on your suggestions. Let us know your ideas at tropicalmba.com slash investments. And big thanks to Joe for stopping by the show and sharing his knowledge. All right, boss man. I'm going to go trade some stocks. (laughs) I'll see you next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.